0: My name is Justin and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about Jamal Fanaka, a director, part of the L.A. Rebellion, who made some great movies and never, ever got a break.
1: You probably haven't heard of him, although maybe you've heard of one of his most famous movies. That is 1979's Penitentiary.
0: Or Penitentiary 2 with Mr. T, who at one point it sounds like he goes, to cancer,
1: (laughs) Or 1987's Penitentiary 3 from the Cannon Group.
0: It was very well-reviewed in cult flicks and trash picks. I remember that. They were a big fan of Penitentiary 3.
1: These movies were substantial independent hits, especially the first one. And Jamal Finaka was one of the few Black filmmakers making not just substantial hits, but any sort of movie in the late 70s, early 80s. You told me an amazing statistic that in, I think, the year 1980... Uh, The only Hollywood movie to have a black lead was Stir Crazy.
0: Yeah, with Richard Pryor. And he was just like the supporting lead as well.
1: (laughs) But, you know, if you only know Jamal Fanaka from the Penitentiary Trilogy, which are uh, exploitation films, Mm -hmm. they're films about uh, uh, boxing in prison. One of them has Mr. T in it. You may not understand what sort of filmmaker Jamal Fanaka was or could have been. And before we go back and explore who he is... The other thing that you may, may know Jama Fanaka for is his 1975 film, Welcome Home Brother Charles, which is famous for being a movie about a black man with a giant four foot penis that kills and strangles. People.
0: Whoa, four foot? More like 14 feet. It goes across the room and strangles that guy. Uh, you're right. I mean, look, look, you, I mean, that's a big difference in semantics. I,
1: I, I mean, look, I'm just so used to, you know, having an enormous dick that yeah. sometimes I, I, maybe I, I lowballed a little bit, <laughs> you <right>. know? <laughs> I mean,
0: Fanaka, what's fascinating about him is that he was part of the L.A. Rebellion, but he's often left out outside of it when people talk about it and you know before we talk about his history we should talk about the LA rebellion a little bit
1: because i think this episode i mean it sounds like we're having fun here it mm. sounds like we're we're laughing watching goofy exploitation films but this this week was a little bit sad for me because mm-hmm. this feels like a week of uh, talent unrealized of institutional racism of the sorts of stories and the styles of storytelling that do not go recognized
0: the thing about the la rebellion which is a group of filmmakers black filmmakers that came out of film schools around 1967
1: particularly ucla mm -hmm,
0: is that all of these filmmakers usually made one or two films, and then that got no distribution and they dropped off the map. It's not like the French New Wave where all these filmmakers flourished and got to do more and more stuff. No, this is like a group of people that, for example, Julie Dash, she didn't get to make her first, like, well-distributed feature film until the
1: early 90s. Julie Dash and Charles Burnett, the director of Killer of Sheep, are probably the best known filmmakers to come out of the LA Rebellion. And For those who don't know what the L.A. Rebellion was, uh, in the late 1960s, affirmative action started to have some impact on film schools. And there was this whole wave of black filmmakers who were finally able to go to UCLA and make movies. Jamaat Fanaka was one of them. He was uh, unusual compared to some of the other ones because the other ones were very adversarial and very ideologically opposed to Hollywood. Yeah,
0: they kind of echoed the neo-realist ideas of places like Italy is that they wanted to tell films from the streets that didn't fit those Hollywood molds.
1: Whereas Fanaka while certainly owing something to the Italian neorealist Mm -hmm. tradition, wanted to find a way to bridge the gap between that and mainstream commercial filmmaking. He
0: just wanted to be a filmmaker, one that could work regularly and tell his stories on screen. I mean, he didn't always want to be a director. He kind of bounced around in life. Uh, He was in the army. He was in jail for a year. And he says that he was on his way to rob a bank when he saw a poster advertising a program that would allow you to go into uh, the UCLA Film School. And even to get into that, he had to go do a different college to be able to qualify to enter the program. And when he did, oh, man, all he wanted to do was make films.
1: We've been talking about movies, about uh, boxing in prison, about Mr. T, about uh, a big killer penises. But again, don't want to give you the wrong idea of Jamal Fanaka. In UCLA he made two movies that uh are are you know it, it's crazy that they're both released by Vinegar Syndrome mm-hmm. who specializes in exploitation movies when I first saw Welcome Home Brother Charles, I was a little frankly disappointed the first time I saw it because it was totally not what I was expecting.
0: Well, I mean, even the second one, Emma had a different title when it came out. It was
1: a Black Sisters' Revenge,
0: which is an insane title for this movie. And Welcome
1: Home Brother Charles also went by the title of Soul Vengeance because, you know, the history of African American filmmaking. In the silent era, you had fil- filmmakers like Oscar Michaud, uh, who were able to you know, make independent films for the circuit of black theaters, particularly in the Deep South. And they never played outside of those theaters, but he was able to go from town to town and make a meager living off of it. And then once that dried up in the early sound era, there were basically no African-American filmmakers until... Uh, the black exploitation wave of the late sixties, early seventies. Melvin yeah. Van Peebles.
0: Yeah, Sweet Sweetback's badass song. Ozzie Davis, and then and then that was kind of swallowed by Hollywood, and it was white filmmakers that turned around and started to tell those stories in the most exploitative ways that they could. I mean, Fanaka hated the label black exploitation because that kind of denoted something lesser to him than the films that he was making.
1: By about 1975, when he was making these movies, the black exploitation boom had fizzled out, and again there were. There were basically no no black movies being Mm -hmm. made, uh, at least in in a sort of mainstream way until, I don't know, the the late 80s, until kind of Spike Lee. (laughs)
0: Yeah, pretty much until Spike Lee, any kind of filmmaker who worked with regularity. Yeah. I mean, so his first film, Welcome Home, Brother Charles, came out of the fact that he had a project that had to be like a five minute sound film in school. And he turned around and decided, you know what? Let's make it feature lengths.
1: (laughs) This is uh, the story of Charles, who's a pimp and a drug dealer in Compton, who's framed of murder by... a corrupt white cop who catches him sleeping with his wife which of course for a corrupt white cop is the ultimate indignity.
0: so what does he do he castrates
1: the man yes he does that on the way to framing him for murder Mm -hmm. castrates him charles goes to prison and the scene where he's in prison is quite extraordinary it's represented through a number of black and white stills and sort of an intense soundscape he comes out of prison uh, professes to be a reformed man. Wants to wants to get on the straight and narrow, but he also wants to avenge his both literal and symbolic castration. I mean, the symbolism is pretty heavy here.
0: I mean, he does get his penis reattached, but something went right because <laughs> now he can hypnotize white women and make love to them and also use it to kill the people that wronged him. Now I say that, and if you put that on the back of the box, young Will, that's why he was disappointed because that is yes. not the core of the movie. For about like an hour and 10 minutes, it's mostly uh, Charles trying to re integrate into society seeing how things have moved on in the 3 years that he was gone
1: yeah i mean it's much more of a kind of i mean this has always been marketed as a black exploitation movie mm-hmm. i think one of the reasons why it was marketed as a black exploitation movie in the mid 70s in particular is it's like the mostly white people who released movies didn't know how else to market mm-hmm. a black themed movie and this one one has certain elements of a black exploitation movie it's uh has heavy sexual content it's you know criminals and cops Mm -hmm. and uh drug dealers and pimps and And i have to admit
0: it does feel like a short film they decided to make feature length so this could have been like 10 minutes long and you would have gotten the main beats of the story but what fanaka brings to it is that kind of lived in sense there's a lot of like shot from moving cars or real people that you get to see
1: yeah i mean i i found this one a bit of a chore to get through but it What's good about Fanaka in all of his movies is that, like you say, it's that lived in feel. He's shooting documentary style in Compton and south Central l a, often using non-professional actors, often using just like people on the street. Mm-hmm. and and the movie the movies have, A bit of a time capsule quality, as great exploitation movies often do.
0: And he got Welcome Home Brother Charles distribution with the same distributor that did Sweet Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Okay. And they renamed it Soul Vengeance and put it out. But because he's an independent filmmaker, he obviously was not offered contracts right there. Wait, I say independent filmmaker, I mean uh, black uh, filmmaker.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, his, his next one, which was also a student film, Emma May, also mm. known as uh, Black Sisters Revenge. Mm. I mean, this has also typically been marketed as an exploitation movie. And it is a bonus feature on the Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray.
0: Let's be honest, this should have been the main film, and Welcome yeah. Home, Brother Charles should have been the bonus film.
1: But, I mean, this one, I guess, is harder to market than Welcome Home, Brother Charles, mm. because it doesn't have somebody with a giant killer penis <laughs> in it. That's right. Uh, it's, again, often marketed as a black exploitation movie, but really it's a rambling character study about Emma May, played by... A UCLA student named Jerry Hayes, who gives her only role (laughs) extraordinary performance (laughs) Mm -hmm. should have led to bigger things. She plays a a southern, a young southern woman who comes to L.A. where her family home is after her mother dies. She goes to live with her aunt and uncle and a whole mess of cousins.
0: And she's presented from the get go as kind of like a hayseed, like, oh, the big city. Like, are you going to be able to handle what goes on around here? But quickly, she just proves herself that, yeah, I'm from the country and we have to deal with some really bad stuff there. Mm -hmm. She beats somebody up right from the get go who kind of gets in her face Mm -hmm. and already gains the trust of this community and her family and starts making friends.
1: Uh, The family sort of, I mean, they're busy. Mm -hmm. They sort of pawn her off on this local tough guy, bit of a hoodlum, bit of a drug dealer, something of a leader in the community. And she becomes his girlfriend he gets arrested thrown in jail just to get bail money to get him out uh, starts a car wash mm-hmm. uh, which you know uh
0: gets shut down because people don't like um non-whites
1: doing any kind of business quickly it becomes a movie you realize about failure of all the systems mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like but
0: it, it, the fact that it is so sprawling and has such a magnetic changing performance in the center that is not only learning stuff, but also revealing itself, I think is why it works so well. I mean, there's some rambling asides in this movie as well, like all of Fanaka's pictures have, but I think that this one, they feel more important than anywhere else, Mm -hmm. mostly because it's all kind of centered by Jerry Hayes' performance as Emma May, who not only is someone that, Is proactive in the film, but she's also learning about these injustices and how she can react
1: to them. Mm -hmm. Now, this one doesn't feel like an exploitation movie. Mm -mm. Uh, Penitentiary does. Do you know, how did he how did he get to penitentiary?
0: So I think that after MMA wasn't a big success for him, he made his money back. And by that, I mean his parents money. Uh, The first four films that he made Uh, Welcome home, Brother Charles, MMA, Penitentiary, and Penitentiary 2. He could not get any outside funding for it. So it was his parents had to put up their life savings each time to pay for the movies. (laughs) And that's how Penitentiary came about. And I think Penitentiary... Even Penitentiary 2? Even Penitentiary 2. No one would give him money. and. You know, Penitentiary was a massive hit. In the year it came out, it was the biggest independent film ever. It made back $74 to each dollar put into making the movie. That is a massive return that I'm sure he saw almost none of because the distributor probably pocketed it all.
1: Again, it's interesting what sorts of independent filmmakers get to go on to big careers, because I'm sure there are a lot of people in Hollywood who would look at something like welcome home, brother Charles or MMA or even penitentiary and say, well, this is, this is rough and slipshod Mm -hmm. and, and also a little day class a, somebody like Kevin Smith can Mm. make clerks.
0: Yeah, and people are like, oh, yes, it's a look into a different side of life that we don't usually see.
1: Yeah, the emergence of a fresh and distinctive Mm. voice.
0: As opposed to MMA, which, watching it, I'm like, this should have been Fanaka's like mean streets. Like, he should have gotten the same attention that somebody like Scorsese did, who then got to make Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And nope, that didn't happen. Nobody cared. It was just treated as a black exploitation film and dismissed.
1: And penitentiary, I'm sure, was just basically not seen by Mm -hmm. the important people. No,
0: and if if it was it got terrible reviews i mean it got one star you pointed out in leonard maltin's movie guide right
1: <laughs> uh, penitentiary 2 dead and uh, it's Penitentiary 2. Well, OK, Penitentiary is the first one. And it's uh, a very muscular and sweaty and bloody movie full of big lubed up bodies and uh, mouths with not a lot of teeth in them. Mm-hmm. Just a, just a real like.
0: But there's you know, a handsome man at the center, yeah. Leon Isaac Kennedy, <laughs> yeah, who uh, plays Too Sweet, a guy Framed pretty much and thrown into jail and I should point out at this point Fanaka was still technically a student and he stayed a student just so he could use the cameras (laughs) and the uh, studio set (laughs) and so that's how this movie was made
1: and Too Sweet realizes quickly that boxing is not only his way out of prison potentially because there's a very active uh, boxing league in the prison Uh, everybody supports Mm. it everybody's happy about it But this is also his way to, I guess, self-actualize and his way to uh, pull himself up by his bootstraps, if you will. Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, these penitentiary films, and we can essentially talk about them as like one nebulous thing because they're not that different from each other. Mm -hmm. Did you watch the third one?
1: I did not get a chance to watch the third one. Right. I, I saw two. Uh,
0: the third one was probably the one that's the most different, the most cartoony, almost in Zucker territory, mm-hmm. because he had more money behind him and he was trying different things. I was
1: kind of shocked by the difference in tone between the first and second one, mm-hmm. because the first one still feels like, I mean, it basically feels like kind of a rocky ripoff. Yeah, it's
0: gritty. Know? And you can also feel the kind of almost poverty row settings like, oh, we made this school uh, to look like a prison.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of like kind of grime and Mm -hmm. and sweat and filth. Like it it feels lived in in that sort of Fanaka way. Uh,
0: Penitentiary 2 barely takes place in penitentiary.
1: Yeah, it starts with him on the outside. He uh, returns home uh, to his girlfriend. Uh, She is quickly, I'm sorry to say, raped and murdered. Mm. Uh, So he... By Ernie Hudson. (laughs) That's right. uh, The Ghostbuster himself. And Too Sweet gets back into boxing for his revenge, basically. It's
0: weird because he gets back into boxing just to prove that he can do something with his life, kind of unrelated to his girlfriend.
1: Yeah, it's a little strange. And the big final showdown... Oh, uh, by the way, before we go to the final showdown, Mr. T is in the movie basically playing, like, the Carl Weathers role in Rocky 3. <laughs> yes, he, he is.
0: Uh, but yeah, he's also dressed like a sultan at one point and has like a genie lamp that he rubs. This <laughs> film can get very silly. Uh,
1: and I mean, there's a whole cavalcade of bizarre supporting characters, including... What's the name of the guy, the the little person from Bad Santa? Oh, Tony, Tony what's his I don't name? remember
0: his name. Or I he's mean, in it. a little person would also appear in the third one where his main villain is like a mad dog boxer called Midnight Thud who at one point flies around the room while he's fighting him.
1: Something I liked about the final showdown in the in the prison, uh cuz they have to justify having the word penitentiary in the title. Mm-hmm. So, so we're back in the walls that shaped him. The audience is full of like characters we remember from penitentiary one yeah it's like yeah it's the family's back you know (laughs) and then the end credits play to basically everybody like freeze frame in front of the camera everybody in a group shot (laughs) and that's when the movie basically the end credits are when the movie kind of clicked into focus for me where it's like okay penitentiary two is basically a party
0: well the thing about the penitentiary films is it feels kind of at odds with what Fanaka had done before like MMA or Welcome Home Brother Charles is that they're kind of in a genre structure that he doesn't seem to have any interest in following Mm -hmm. like some of the boxing matches are just kind of tossed off it's like I guess we have to have a climax so here you go
1: tonally Mm -hmm. part two is kind of all over the place Mm I mean it has that Brutal uh, rape scene, which goes on forever. I mean, like so, so many movies had that, Mm. like death, that kind of death wish Wish too. But yeah, there's that. There's some rather slapsticky, over the top comedy, Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, earnest sports movie stuff.
0: <laughs> There's the same thing that happens in Penitentiary 1 and 2 which is that inmates really want to have sex while the boxing match is going on mm-hmm. so you can intercut between Leon Isaac Kennedy fighting and ah this guy
1: just wants to get laid. Yeah. I imagine Fanaka probably wanted to do things other than Penitentiary 3.
0: Yeah, but I think that's all that people would give him any money for. And people said, oh, that's the only thing you can get distribution for. He wanted to make this movie called Street Wars uh, for a long time. And he did uh, later on in his career. But after Penitentiary 2, he just wanted to direct television. And he got into the DGA, one of the few um, black directors that was given that chance. And he could get no jobs, Mm -hmm. which is a little bit baffling when you look at how big a hit penitentiary one was if any other white filmmaker made a movie that made that much money Uh people would be knocking down his door to make more movies yeah (laughs) but instead no jobs and he sued i'm not sure who he sued i think like it was like kind of like a general lawsuit mostly as a provocation that these industries were racist and that's why he wasn't getting jobs. I think that some of the studios said, oh, it's because he was too difficult or out there. But of course they would say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah, because all white filmmakers, they're great and they have no problems or no attitudes.
1: Yeah. So he died in 2012 mm-hmm. and it had been well over a decade since his previous film. Yeah.
0: 1989 Street Wars was his last one, which I did get to watch and was interesting in that His style had obviously evolved. They had thought a lot about it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of Top Gun-ish and a precursor to stuff like Menace to Society and uh, New Jack City, which is about like crack dealers. Mm -hmm. And one of them decides, ah, we'll take to the skies in these little planes Mm -hmm. to take over the city. Hence the Street Wars and Star Wars parody font.
1: (laughs) And the LA Rebellion is something that I feel like only... Like, it only came into focus for scholars long after it had happened. There was nobody who was sort of writing about it at the time.
0: Well, none of the films got any distribution. Like, Killer of Sheep was a famously unavailable film.
1: Daughters of the Dust had a big revival recently.
0: So all these filmmakers, they made pictures that people just dismissed mostly because they were black filmmakers, mm-hmm. didn't give a chance, and then they couldn't really work that much. I mean, Charles Burnett struggled for a long time. A lot of these filmmakers worked in television here or there. By the way,
1: Charles Burnett was a camera operator on Welcome Home, Brother Charles.
0: Yes, he was. He uh, Charles Burnett was kind of like a cinematographer who would work on a bunch of projects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they were helping each other, but it never led to anything, which is the biggest bummer.
1: So, I mean, it feels unfortunate to frame Jama Fanaka largely in terms of, I mean... It's like I'm framing him in terms of failure here Mm -hmm. because looking at his filmography, it looks like there are the first two and then there's penitentiary.
0: Well, people love the penitentiary films. Yeah. So he did have his cult there. Yeah. But- I just wish you could have seen what Elsie could have done and nobody gave him any opportunity to do so.
1: But check out MMA. <laughs>
0: yeah, I would definitely check out MMA. And if you're checking that out, you're getting Welcome Home Brother Charles because they're both on the same disc. Why not check that? <laughs> and,
1: and fuck it. Watch the penitentiary movies. Yeah, watch them.
0: Yeah, you know what? Order from Vinegar Syndrome. This episode is not brought to you by them. It should be. Yeah. And order all the discs that we just mentioned because why not? Uh, penitentiary 3, still not available on DVD. What a shame. It's one of those canon films from late in the game. So it, the right are. Are probably all mangled and nobody knows who has the master for it. We interrupt your regular scheduled programming to thank some new Patreon subscribers, like Noah Hacker, John Furter, Mert, and another John. Thank you so much for becoming subscribers. As I say every week, we could not keep doing this without you. If you as well would like to become a subscriber, you can check out our 150-plus episode back catalog of Patreon episodes, each one over 20 minutes about a little bit more esoteric, riffing-type subjects. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And if you haven't yet, we would really appreciate it if you went on Apple Podcast and rated and reviewed the show. I was looking at the uh, stats recently, and the highest we've ever been in the United States TV and film podcasting chart is on February 8th, 2020, we were 159th. So if you could help us get even higher by rating, reviewing us, sharing the podcast with everybody you know, it would be very helpful. And if you want to hear from me and Will on a day-to-day basis, Will Sloan on Twitter is at WillSloanESQ, and I'm at decluej D-E-C-L-O-U-X, and the letter J. And now back to your regular scheduled programming. Do
1: we have any letters this week? We do have
0: letters. As per usual, you can send us uh, questions, comments, at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. It goes, Hello, Justin and Will. Have you ever experienced a case of music reuse in film? I was watching 48 Hours and was struck by how its steel drum and fence heavy soundtrack was nearly identical to that of Commando, a beloved film of mine. Turns out, it was the same composer on both films. I believe that's James Horner who wrote both scores who would famously recycle his music all the time mm-hmm. but it got me thinking are there any instances that stand out to you of copy paste composing I know that Will has expressed his distaste for the repetitive work of John Williams in the past <laughs> you, you came out against John Williams at some point
1: uh, that sounds like something I'd say <laughs> yeah.
0: I couldn't remember I you know. saying that on this
1: podcast you know I don't know if it's distaste so much as I was just making a humorous observation mm-hmm. that all of his scores sound the same but mm-hmm. you know some of them some of them I like
0: Danny Elfman Hans Zimmer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Danny Elfman. La, 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 la,
0: And that many of the films you covered in the Ark Arkin Turkish film episode straight up used copyrighted tracks from more famous movies. But are there any other instances of music reuse in films that stand out to you? Keep up the great work, Zenik.
1: Yeah, I remember seeing The Artist all those many years ago. Vertigo. Vertigo. I remember there was that moment when some very familiar music started playing and I was trying to figure out what the hell is that? I'm I've heard that that's not from this movie and yeah it's vertigo but
0: uh it's always fun when you hear music like from somewhere else usually in a cheap movie because that's why they would recycle it
1: well that's why it felt so strange in the artist mm. you know you, you're not used to hearing like the same music from another big movie yeah know, in, a, in a big movie but yeah i mean i love i love watching a turkish ripoff movie and hearing you know <laughs> blade
0: <laughs> runner or <yeah>. john
1: williams or <laughs> john williams yeah hearing the indiana jones theme when it should be a superman movie you know <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Poverty Row would always use like public domain tracks all the time. Oh, a movie that I don't think we ever talked about on this podcast. But we showed at the Laser Blast Film Society Furious, mm-hmm. which is an independent. Did you see that one? Yeah, it played, I did. Martial arts film. The music in that is just like a needle drop of like a Russian orchestra, not synced up to the movie. And it just plays throughout.
1: <laughs> uh, the Bride of Frankenstein music plays in just a ton of like of the real either lesser universal horror movies or I think they sold it to like like the Phantom Creeps has the Bride of Frankenstein <laughs> score it, or, or also uh, King Kong versus Godzilla the U.S. version has the Creature from the Black Lagoon score.
0: Right. I mean, classical music is often considered just free game for any uh, producers making a very low budget movie. And Hong Kong was also famous for recycling music, mostly because they were like, eh, nobody will notice. There's like some Western themes that show up a lot in Shaw Brothers movies. Uh the killer john who's the killer has music from red heat in it
1: (laughs) yeah or you know some of sean costello's porn films it's like i basically associate the thief soundtrack the tangerine dream soundtrack more with sean costello than i do with (laughs) michael Mann.
0: so i think that me and will are coming out pro
1: (laughs) yes i like it when cheap movies appropriate music, but the only downside is it's hard to license that when you then want to put it out on DVD.
0: Yeah, it makes it a big problem. I mean, unless, you know, there's so many DVDs being put out now, maybe they'll just come and go. Uh, Completely unrelated, I'm putting out Turkish films on Blu-ray, the Gold Ninja video label.
1: Excellent. And what movie are you putting out?
0: Death Warrior, which we talked about at length on our Janate Arkin
1: episode. And folks, I think if you watch one Turkish ripoff movie, make it this one.
0: And if you get this disc, you may have yourself a little bit of a Turkish film festival because included with it, you not only get Death Warrior, you also got the film that Death Warrior cannibalized to make itself Holy Sword, which is also a prequel to Death Warrior. You get another Janate Arkin film, The Biggest Punch, which is a great title. It's kind of his take on like, James Bondian movies Mm -hmm. and you may get another film somewhere hidden
1: on the disc who knows and I assume a whole bunch of your special features
0: yeah I did like a video essay which I'm gonna be honest they're so hard to do because I have to like write it and then I have to read it edit it to make sure that it's comprehensive and then put clips throughout it I thought
1: the the one you did on the Thundering Mantis disc was really good
0: yep and it's another one like that for Turkish cinema that you can find exclusively it's like a little I call them like introductions because it's just oh this is what you need to know about it and then and you know, watch the other movies, explore more.
1: Happy to say, you and I are going to be working on another Blu-ray pretty soon. Yep,
0: but we won't yeah, say what it I is yet. It is. I'm oh. very
1: excited. Hey, speaking of Blu-ray news, a few weeks ago on this podcast, we mentioned that Fist of Fear, Touch of Death. <laughs> oh yeah, is being put out on a special edition Blu-ray, mm-hmm. totally remastered, beautiful new. And we begged, features. we were like, how can we get, how can we get involved with this? Like, and we
0: emailed them, and they were like, oh, thank you for your interest. Uh, you know hope you buy it. We'll send you screeners. And we're like, oh, okay. I guess we're not going to be doing anything for it.
1: You know, that's fine. It's nice to be nominated. Uh,
0: (laughs) We weren't even nominated, but uh, but, they reached out and we're like, Hey, could you guys write liner notes for it? And we're like, will we? Fuck. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So yes, we are involved in the new restored Blu-ray release of fist of fear, touch of death. We wrote liner notes for it, but aside from that, I
0: think this is like the first big special edition that the film detective has ever done.
1: Yeah, they have a whole new documentary where they've got interviews with Fred Williamson.
0: Insane. Probably spent more time doing these interviews than he was in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's him and Ron Van Cleef being interviewed together.
1: That's right. Plus the whole creative team behind the movie, mm. Terry Levine from Aquarius Films and Fist of Fear, Touch of Death. We've talked about it before.
0: It's been on a Golden Ninja video release. It's <laughs> The first one. <laughs> That's
1: out of print though. So it won't be <laughs> yeah. listen, if you have that first Golden Ninja video Release. you should still buy this new one because it's remastered remastered and the fist of your touch of death is an incredible film mm-hmm. it's it's one of the wildest exploitation movies you'll look at it and be like how did they have the chutzpah to release this movie <laughs>
0: yeah. i love that they're like being interviewed about it now as well because they were like you know one of the reasons that we put it on that number one long out of print blu-ray is that the joke was no one would put this as a special edition. Everyone's <laughs> forgotten this movie. It doesn't yeah. matter. I think we say that in the introduction, but here you go. A whole new special edition of yeah. it. And it
1: just means so much to me that we're involved in this.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's a very limited edition, supposedly. They made like a thousand copies or something like yeah. that. So pick it up. It'll be worth it.
1: Yeah. It's on the Film Detective website. I believe US Amazon also has it. Mm-hmm.
0: I think Film Detective is going more in the direction because they also did a special edition. Now that I think of it, they did EGA. They released oh, a special yeah. edition of that uh, yeah. in conjunction with Mr. Stein's series 3000. So more of that because people don't know the film detective, they take kind of public domain ish films and they do new scans and they would put them out on DVD and Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. And now it seems that they're going into the kind of like boutique special edition market. And I have to say all the power to them Hell because yes. I'll be there. Yeah. So next week, Will, what are we doing? Oh, and people can buy that disc that we mentioned way before at goldninjavideo.com. Limited edition, 200 copies. So make sure to get one now. Get
1: the whole Golden Ninja library. I have the whole Golden Ninja library. Well,
0: you can't get them all because some of them are out of print. No more Wolf Devil directors. They're gone. Yeah. I'm
1: very sorry to hear that. Everybody who got that is in for a treat. I
0: mean, yeah, they're in for a week of movies. (laughs) I did a long um, video essay on that one as well about Pearl Chang, so... Well,
1: next week on the podcast, we're talking about maybe the greatest animator who ever lived.
0: I would say yes. And I would say... Better
1: than Walt Disney.
0: Yeah. The most influential animator as well. The things that he did were kind of just absorbed into pop culture and reuse of the template of just what a cartoon is. Like
1: when you think of a wolf, Mm -hmm. who do you you think of? (laughs) Yep. You think of Tex Avery.
0: Yep. That's it. Tex Avery, the guy who basically, you know created the idea of, like, uh, animated animals doing a bunch of crazy stuff. He's the one who gave Bugs Bunny his early personality before Chuck Jones came in. Yeah,
1: I mean, okay, talk about influential animators. (laughs) This guy made Bugs Bunny. He did,
0: and he did, like, Porky Pig.
1: And that's not even the best thing he did. No,
0: and we're talking about him. If people want to, like, bone up before they listen to the episode— Warner Archive just put out the Tex Avery Screwball Classics Volume 1 and the thing about Tex Avery is that he has never gotten any proper like, respect as an animator on home video. Like All the cartoons that are on this, including Little Red Riding Hood mm-hmm. had only been available in like really crummy transfers that were done in the 90s yeah. and they went back and they found like uh, positives and do new, did new scans and these just look beautiful. I already watched them all. I just sat down and I watched them all so I'm really excited to dive deeper into his filmography and just talk about how important he is. I can't wait. All right. So until next week, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. On a serious note, some people may be trapped at home soon or maybe even unfortunately getting sick which made me think of like, I was sick a lot as a child. I remember kind of like hugging the humidifier, that
1: hot air blowing into my face. You're constantly like licking subway poles. <laughs> That's
0: right. <laughs> that Yeah, those licking the subway poles gave me those ear infections. <laughs> and I remember the greatest thing of staying home and being sick is you could watch whatever you wanted on television. I watch guess. movies until the cows came home or until you got better.
1: Yeah, that was always great in theory to me. But mm. the problem is if you've got like the flu, where you go really bad cold. feel terrible. Yeah, and, and sometimes my attention span is not great when I have the flu.
0: I remember sitting just feverishly watching Grease and it feel like going on forever.
1: I remember having the flu recently and just sitting and like listening to a lot of director's commentaries because that's, like, <laughs> that's like all I could, I couldn't actually watch movies. Would you just like fall asleep while you're listening to them? Oh yeah, totally.
0: <laughs> I But as a kid or even now, like what would you throw on to pass the time as you're laying in bed? Because you can't just stare and be left with your thoughts. You'll go crazy. Oh, yeah. Well, um, Godzilla movies.
1: Godzilla movies are good. Or like, you know, Monty Python. And yeah. like that. Like, so
0: things that are familiar to you. Things that are familiar for mm. sure.
1: Or, you know, actually sometimes I remember when I had my wisdom teeth taken out, just like watching, you know, all the movies on my hard drive uh, <laughs> while I was bleeding everywhere.
0: Wait, did you have a bit bad wisdom teeth period after you got them taken out? To me, it was nothing. I was just on top of the world. Oh, my
1: God. The, uh, the worst experience of my wow. life. So I don't think the sedative they give me like had any effect
0: so you don't remember being knocked out
1: no i wasn't knocked out like the dentist like basically i was wide awake did
0: you go to like budget tooth removals
1: rs they put something in my mouth but i was wide awake and and the dentist just drilled basically straight into my wisdom teeth and i was just like ah
0: What was going on? This is how my wisdom teeth were taken out. They put an IV in my arm and they said, you know, you're going to pass out uh, and we're going to start this. And I went, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. And then I woke up in the chair in the other room. Oh, man. And my girlfriend at the time said I walked over and I was like kind of conscious when that was happening. But I had no memory of it. Didn't hurt and I just went home and I, just spent the rest of the I, time I, I
1: remember to this day uh, having a drill go straight into my teeth is it safe
0: what could you talk like were you just frozen were you
1: like you know, I was like, just, I have no mouth but I'm a scream I was screaming and I don't know why
0: and the dentist just kept going yeah it wasn't like
1: well, I, where were you I mean uh, look, the
0: Canadian health system look, just like the barbarian invasions
1: uh no I, in Canada uh, we, don't, we don't have dental universal coverage universal health yeah. health for, de- for dental but that's yeah that's
0: right or I work which seems kind of essential
1: yeah so my my most vivid memory was watching um uh james Toback's when will i be loved
0: on my laptop during that james Toback. <laughs> remember james Toback? yeah uh i remember recently picking up uh projections a uh book series that i love and going oh i don't have this one and looking who wrote the diary and it was james Toback. i'm like back on the shelf you go
1: yeah that fucker <laughs>
0: So, you know what? At least it won't be as bad as having your wisdom, without like a
1: horrifying... Wait, was this, did this happen recently? It happened 10 years ago.
0: Oh, okay. So...
1: Al- almost exactly 10 years ago.
0: You are scaring anyone that haven't had their wisdom teeth removed.
1: Well, I'm telling you, if your doctor tells you to get it out, you should have it out. But so, wait, they gave you no sedative? Like what They was- gave me a sedative, but um, <laughs> I think they must have put it in the wrong wrong spot. <laughs> I, I, no,
0: but, like, to knock you out.
1: I was not knocked out. Okay. I, I think I think he put it in to, like... Just to numb your just teeth. Just to numb my teeth. Yeah. You're like
0: You're, like, in the budget dental hut.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and now I know. I guess at the time I just thought that was... How it's how, supposed to how be how done. ...how it was done. And, of course, it hurts. Your wisdom teeth are being taken out. Oh, this has
0: been a harrowing uh, post. It's actually, it's actually,
1: I'm, like, shaking thinking about it. It was so awful.
0: <laughs> Is it safe? <laughs>